So I don't know. I've always sort of lived in language. We've all felt a part of that story. How I look at it is that poetry is not the transcription of experience, it's the transformation of it. You're listening to Retellings, the Washington University creative writing podcast series. Welcome to Retellings. I'm Rebecca King, and today I sit down with Carl Phillips to talk about poetry, inspiration, and faith before visiting the classics department to learn a little more about one of Carl's biggest influences, Greek tragedy. Carl is the author of 12 books of poetry, including, most recently, Silver Chest and Double Shadow, which won the Los Angeles Times Book Prize. He has been a finalist for both the National Book Award and the National Book Critics Circle Award. He currently serves as professor of English at Washington University, where he teaches poetry. Let's jump right in. As predominantly a fiction writer, I'm really interested in form and poetry. Mm -hmm. How do your poems take form? I'd like to think of lines and line breaks in the way musicians have sheet music and notes and everything. Like a quarter note is going to be held a certain amount versus a half note. And so I, I feel like if you could musically score a poem, that's what I'm trying to do. And that's how some lines are longer than others. And I know you graduated with a degree in Greek and Latin Mm -hmm. and received your master's in Latin and classical humanities Mm -hmm. before getting your master's in creative writing. So do you find that that informs your poetry now? It does less and less, but when I read Greek tragedy, I, I had never read anything like that. And I think it's fair to say all Greek tragedy spins around a conflict between public versus private duty. You know, so like Antigone needs to bury her brother. That's a family duty, but there's been a ban on burying traitors. So so then you have to pick, and you're kind of screwed either way. And I find those moments when there's a conflict between how we behave and how we're expected to behave to be kind of crucial. And in my own work, I look a lot at that in terms of sexual behavior. Obviously, there are many things society thinks are right and wrong, and then there's what people actually do with their bodies. So so in that sense, I think I'm still in conversation with some of my studies. I read in some of your other interviews that you were brought up Christian with that kind of morality. Oh, so, no. no. They think I am. Oh, really? They think I was. I was raised as a heathen. Um, <laughs> my parents were an interracial couple. And when they first went to a church, they apparently were shunned. And so they decided, this is how my parents work, they decided, well, we hate all churches forever. I mean, I think most of what I know about religion is from Greek mythology. And and then it wasn't until I was in the writing program at Boston University that I took a course on religious poetry. I had never read all these people like John Donne and George Herbert and Hopkins. And, and in order to really appreciate those poets, you have to be familiar with the Bible, so then I try to make myself read that. So I don't know, I feel like I'm this self-taught person. But for some reason, people do think that. I think because I'm interested in faith and what makes someone able to believe in something that they can't prove. And I'm also interested in the parallels between religious practice and sexual practice. And giving yourself up to faith in terms of religious faith, well, the relationship between that to giving your body up to a stranger or trusting that somebody says that they don't have a disease or an STD. I know it's not the same thing, but it's, it's a kind of vulnerability. In your latest book, 
silver chest. Mm -hmm. Dominance and submission seem to be this big theme. What about that subject appeals to you? Well, I guess I'm interested in the power structure of relationships because I think there's always power in the balance and you know, like how do two very strong-willed people, for example, exist in a relationship? It seems that there has to be yielding by somebody, and so who's going to do that? After a while, I was interested in how that plays itself out, and just because someone seems to be the more quiet person in the couple doesn't mean that they actually don't hold their form of power, not just sexually, but again, it does resonate with spiritual life, it seems to me. This idea of faith in some higher power, which requires submission. But it's kind of an old subject, too. I mean, it's very much in the metaphysical writers, with John Donne asking God to batter his heart and to beat him into submission so that he will be more faithful. So there's something very erotically charged about it. Do you think poetry is a way to explore? You talked about, like, sexuality and identity. Mm -hmm. For me, writing poems is a way of wrestling with unresolvable questions. And for a brief time, it feels as if resolution has been reached. But then, of course, you realize there is no resolution, so that was a temporary sort of stay against, I don't know, madness, it feels like sometimes. And, you know, so even just a basic subject like love, I mean, there is no resolution to it in some way. And so I think that's why people keep writing about it. I mean, there's still heartache and there's still joy and... And neither one of them seems to ever be the one that you land on permanently. So, Which writers do you feel most indebted to? Hmm. Well, not poets. I'm interested in the history writings of the Roman writer Tacitus and of the Greek writer Thucydides. They use syntax and the sentence as a kind of veiled way to express controversial ideas sometimes. And I... I think with, from them and from people like Cicero, I learned about how language can be a form of manipulation. And then later, I discovered sort of equivalent writers to my mind, like Henry James's novels, and these long, winding sentences that are, to me, though I'm a bit of a grammar nerd, they're kind of seductive. And I had never thought of a sentence as being that, a form of seduction. And what makes you get caught up in a long sentence by Proust, say, and you don't notice that three pages have gone by. Or you do, but you, but you keep going. I find the sentence and syntax to be very powerful tools for kind of leading the reader here and there and surprising him or her. How close to your poetry would you say that the speaker is and you are? I guess how I look at it is that poetry is not the transcription of experience, it's the transformation of it. So I don't want people to read my books and think, okay, that's what Carl's been doing. On the other hand, it's true that these are things I've been thinking about. So it's hard to say. I mean, it, I think every poem by anybody is autobiographical at some level. Even if you just write about leaves falling off a tree, the fact that you chose to write about that versus something else says something about you, even if it's not a confession of any kind. So for example, in the poem that I read with the the two guys and the horses. I'm afraid of horses. I don't hang out with people who have horses, but I'm attracted to their beauty. And and I don't know anybody who has stables and all of that. So that just is something that occurs in the mind. That's just the setting for it. And that's made up. But then this issue of what does it mean to have found that enough time has passed that you've been with somebody for 
what amounts to a personal history. And what does it mean that the relationship is, it veers between sexual humiliation to the naming of horses to looking at flowers in somebody's garden. So somewhere in there is something that's true, but then a lot that isn't. Well, what advice do you have for young poets? Some of it's boring advice, like read everything possible and everything counts, it seems to me, whether it's People magazine or, you know, the Norton Anthology. But also what I feel I'm observing with a lot of young writers is a resistance to living in the world. Like, I I think it's important to actually walk outside, go out, do stuff. I've known students who, after two years here, have not gone to Forest Park, which is across the street. And, I mean, it's never occurred to them to ride a bike through there or something. I think, well, you should. You should get out and do stuff. I feel like that's where poetry comes from, is how we interact with the world and in ways that often we didn't expect. Is there a question that we haven't asked or a question that you've always wanted to be asked? I don't know. Like if someone asked me, what is your favorite thing to do? Because I feel that often people think there's some writerly life and <laughs> that what I'm mostly doing is looking for the next poem and then writing and reading books and everything. And then my answer would probably be cooking completely from scratch. And strangely, I feel like it's the antidote to poetry in some way because to me it feels like so much grappling to try to come about into a poem. There's something refreshing about having your ingredients and knowing if I do the following things, I will actually make something today and give pleasure to other people if I feed it to them. And there's something nice about the particular pleasure of bringing people often who don't know each other together and over food, suddenly everyone's happy. And I like that. I think my poems make it seem as if I spend a lot of time brooding and being gloomy, but (laughs) actually I like happiness. After meeting with Carl, I was interested in hearing more about Greek tragedy and the universality of its themes. Timothy Moore, the chair and the John and Penelope Biggs Distinguished Professor of Classics at Washington University, was kind enough to indulge me. I'll start actually with a presentation I heard in which somebody was presenting the term Greek tragedy as it appears in modern films. And in fact, it shows up all the time. Every time something bad happens in a film, no matter what it is, even if it's comic sometimes, people say, oh, it's a Greek tragedy. (laughs) Because that term has become so symbolic for a certain kind of bad things happening, especially very sad endings. In fact, the Greek tragedies for a Greek would be a play that's performed at a festival of Dionysus at Athens. The three great Greek tragedians, Aeschylus, Sophocles, and Euripides, whose plays have survived from antiquity, are all writers from the 5th century BCE, what we often call the Golden Age of Athens. Ever since that time, people have tried to find some way of defining what those plays were. The first person we have who did this in detail was Aristotle wrote a work called The Poetics, which was about a number of different kinds of works, but the part that survives is the part about tragedy. And he had various notions about tragedy which have been enormously influential. He said that tragedy has a specific kind of emotional effect, which he called catharsis, that somehow it purifies us of certain emotions through what we experience watching and listening to a tragedy, specifically fear and other very severe emotions. And as a result, he said, tragedy had to work in certain ways in order to do that has to have, particularly he said, a peripatia, a change of fortune. And watching that change of fortune is 
what makes a play a tragedy. He thought that that change of fortune should happen because of what he called by the Greek hamartia, which is some kind of mistake. He thought that a tragic hero, the person who's going to produce this catharsis, should be somebody not really bad, but not completely perfect. There should be some kind of error that causes this. We think of tragedy largely because of Aristotle as specifically a change of fortune from good to bad. Aristotle thought that that was the best kind of tragedy. But in fact, if we look at the tragedies, especially of the great playwright Euripides, we find that a number of these actually end rather happily, in contrast to comedies where the emphasis is on farce. And as we think of how tragedy has developed since antiquity, very much influenced by Aristotle, it tends to be types of drama that bring about a bad change of fortune of some type, and that's how we tend to think about Greek tragedy today. Yeah, Oedipus comes to mind, of course, thanks to Freud and many others. What would you list as the seminal Greek tragedies? Of the tragedies that we still have, the ones that I think still have the most significance for us are, first of all, what's called the Aristia by the earliest of the three great tragedians, Aeschylus. This is the story of the house of Atreus. The first play, the Agamemnon, Agamemnon comes back from Troy after his great victory and he's murdered. In the second play, Agamemnon's son, Orestes, comes back and kills his mother, Clytemnestra, who has murdered his father. He, in turn, at the end of that play, begins to be punished by these horrible creatures called Furies. In the third play, called the Eumenides, Orestes is pursued by them, and eventually there's a trial, and he's acquitted and presumably relieved of these Furies. This play raises all sorts of fascinating questions about vengeance, justice, family relations. So it's one of the really key Greek tragedies. The second in age of the three tragedians is Sophocles. It's actually my favorite. Sophocles, most famous for his Oedipus the King, which certainly has, as you suggested, been enormously influential. But he also wrote perhaps a hundred other tragedies altogether, of which we have about seven that have survived. Of the ones that have had the most significance besides the Oedipus, I think would be the Antigone, which is Oedipus's daughter who buries her brother who's been illegally fighting against the city of Thebes and she herself is punished for that. It also raises fascinating questions about where your duties are in terms of religion, family, and the state. The third of the great tragedians chronologically was Euripides. And Euripides produced a hundred-some tragedies. We have from him more than the others. We have about 19 tragedies. And the most famous and influential of those are, first of all, his Medea, in which Medea's husband leaves her, and she, as a result, kills the bride and then kills her own children. And that, too, raises really, really interesting questions about why she would do this and questions about the position of women in society. The other most influential Euripidean tragedies, I think, would be the Bacchae, it's actually one of the very last tragedies we have. And it tells the story of how Pentheus, a leader again in the city of Thebes, refused to acknowledge the divinity of Dionysus. And as a result, he was punished terribly. His own mother pulled him apart and killed him. It raises really interesting questions as well about what we call the Dionysian still today. How should one respond to the kind of release that is brought both by Dionysus's domain of alcohol and also the whole release from everyday restrictions and what happens when we refuse to make that part of our lives? You mentioned justice and familial poles versus the state and the self, the themes that reoccur in these Greek tragedies. Could you talk a little bit more about this? Yes, those are just some of the themes. What we find especially in Greek tragedy is dysfunctional families. The extreme, of course, is Oedipus, where he ends up sleeping with his mother and murdering his father. 
But what makes Greek tragedy special is that unlike, say, a soap opera, which just sticks with those family relationships, these dysfunctional families are always connected to something bigger. They're connected with the political state, for example. A tragedy of Euripides is called the Iphigeniad Aulis, in which the gods tell Agamemnon he has to sacrifice his daughter. And we see in that play the torment of Agamemnon, the continual debates among the army itself, Agamemnon's wife, Clytemnestra, who comes and says, don't you kill my daughter, and Iphigenia herself, who finally, in a rather bizarre change of heart, goes from saying, don't kill me, to yes, I will be sacrificed for the state. It has to happen. And that raises some great irony and questions of, should this happen? How important is the state? How important is fighting a war? In addition, we have the constant question of religion. On the one hand, you would think, why should I care about a religion that almost nobody's practiced for 2,000 years? But in fact, as we look about the way the gods play a role here, we find that the religious dimension of Greek tragedy speaks to much more than just the specific religion of the time. Any of us who think about there being a divinity, or even those who don't, can think about how these gods represent forces in the universe that human beings have to deal with. So when the chorus of Agamemnon, for example, desperately trying to seek some kind of sense in the sacrifice of Iphigenia, the terrible war at Troy, they pray to Zeus and say, Zeus, you must be making some kind of sense here. There must be some kind of meaning. And they sing the Greek words, pathe mathos, which is one of the most famous of Greek quotations, which means wisdom comes through suffering. And they hope that somehow that will happen. Now, we may not believe in Zeus, but still we can think about whether we're looking in a theological or non-theological realm. Does that occur? Do we actually learn from suffering? I hear that your research is, most, is more on comedies. My research has been mostly on Roman comedy. Uh, I've recently completed a book on music in Roman comedy. And I'd like to argue that for their own light natures, comedies too, the ancient comedies, speak to things that are still very, very relevant. The plays that I work on, for example, are the plays of Plautus and Terence, which are written in the second century BCE in Rome. And in many ways, they seem completely and utterly foreign to us. They have slaves. So the position of women is very different from what it is in most modern societies. They're interested in all sorts of things that we wouldn't think about in terms of arranged marriages. But at the same time, they present people in situations that we still find today. At their core is the love plot, which is just the plot of a romantic movie today. So we see the same kind of thing, men in love with women and obstacles to that being overcome, and they speak universally just as the tragedies do in many ways. You mentioned that you knew Carl Phillips from before Washington University. Yes, I had actually met Carl over 20 years ago. So when I came to Washington University and learned that he was here, I was thrilled. He's a great friend of our department at what we do here in classics. He himself is classically trained. His poetry is very informed by classics, as you know from your discussion with him. And he came and visited my Horace class, the lyric poet Horace I taught last fall. And during that class, we got a chance to talk about Carl's own translations of some of the odes of Horace. And it was one of the high points of the course for my students who got to see how a modern poet is responding to this poetry from the first century BCE. And that's what we're hoping to discover a little more, too. Thanks again for listening to Retellings, a part of Hold That Thought at Washington University. And thanks to Carl Phillips and Tim Moore for taking time to meet with us. I hope you'll join me next week when I meet with the poet Mary Jo Bang to discuss her translation of Dante's Inferno and how Dante's Hell, set in 1300, is still relevant today.